Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have a very special conversation with one of my old coaches and mentors, Lance Watson. Lance describes his journey into the sport of triathlon and and how he built the Canadian Triathlon National Training Centre in Victoria and, and how his athlete, Simon Whitfield, winning the Olympic gold in 2000 affected his life. Lance discusses how he, along with Mark Allen, Dave Scott, Paula Newby-Fraser, and Matt Dixon, built the Ironman University coaching courses, and how his own coaching, life sport, has grown to reach all corners of the world. Lance describes his coaching style and his methodologies, his mental strategies for his athletes, nutrition, and working with athletes over many, many years. So much in this one with some great stories of the past. Now, some housekeeping Please share this if you're enjoying this show. You really help me out. Please also review on Apple Podcasts if you get the chance. That would also be wonderful for me. And I do love your feedback if you can on some of the social media platforms. So on Instagram, I'm The Greg Bennett Show and Twitter, I'm at Greg Bennett Show. And finally, um, you can find the show notes, timestamps, coupon codes and all the links at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. That's bennettendurance.com forward slash media. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. Now, remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. If you're enjoying the show, you can support by supporting the show's sponsors. All of these products I'm using regularly. You see, these past few months, I've become even more conscious about my metabolic health, my nutrition, supplementation, movement, sleep and recovery, and and social interaction. And I found the support for my metabolic health with these sponsors, Athletic Greens, Hyperice, and Continual G. Athletic Greens is a green drink source from Whole Foods that actually tastes great. It's delivered straight to your door, and it's highly absorbable powder, which takes seconds to mix with water, so there's no clumpiness to deal with. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery and probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health and vitamin C and zinc citrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. It's NSF certified for sport, no harmful chemicals, no GMOs, and no funny additives. Honestly, I can't recommend Athletic Greens enough. Whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system, or address gut health, now's the perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. A number of my guests that I've had on the show take Athletic Greens regularly, including Timothy O'Donnell, Marinda Carfrey, Tim Don, and Sebastian Kinley, amongst others. There's a great offer going on now for you to give it a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free daily travel packets with your first purchase, a $79 added value, and get Athletic Greens delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Now, with two kids and a business to run, time is limited. In the past, when I was a professional athlete with no kids, I'd line up the massages throughout the week to help with recovery and those niggling injuries. But now, I only use the various recovery tools from Hyperice. They work, they're easy to use, and they're time efficient. My go-to is the Hypervolt, the world's most powerful percussion massage device featuring Quiet Glide technology. Their vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology, and Normatec compression systems help you warm up faster, recover quicker, and simply move better. With Christmas fast approaching, yes, it's almost here, Hyperize products make the perfect gift for anybody in your life that you want to help support, get them, and keep them moving. 
Get $50 off all percussion devices now. No code needed and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E.com and use code GREG10 for 10% off. Finally, you're not going to believe this, but I have a new sponsor that doesn't sell anything. They just want to educate. It's called theglutathionreporter.com. That's theglutathionreporter.com. You can find them in my show notes. Why are they doing this? Well, it appears that medical doctors, scientists, college professors are sticklers for accurate information. (laughs) And instead of complaining or getting into Twitter battles, these guys just build a website to reach out and teach people everything you want to know about glutathione. The reason I'm interested, and this is important, is that most consumers are wasting time and money on dietary supplements that don't work. And the best way to prevent this is to do your homework, form your own opinion, and make more informed decisions. So go to theglutathionreporter.com. All right, today's guest is one of the greatest triathlon coaches of all time. In three decades of coaching triathlon, he has coached at four Olympics and over 50 world championships, coached more than 20 professional Ironman winners, and an Olympic gold medalist. He's one of only five Ironman master coaches and was inducted into the Triathlon Hall of Fame. The athletes he's worked with have reached the top of the world with incredible success, including Olympians Simon Whitfield and Brent McMahon. Simon, of course, winning the Olympic gold in 2000. And Ironman champions Lisa Bentley, Chris Lieto, and Peter Reed. He worked with Laura and I for several years and personally, he brought back the joy of triathlon, the training and racing in my career when I was feeling incredibly burnt out. And I'm so grateful for that period of time that I had with him. So he's been an incredible mate of mine for two decades. I'm honored to have him on the show. So welcome and thank you for joining me on the Greg Bennett Show. Lance Watson, how are you, mate? I'm doing great. Thanks for that beautiful introduction, Greg. And um, really, really awesome to be here and to reconnect with you um, after a little while. It has been a while. It has been a while. And I, I think, like I just mentioned in the introduction, it was like, you know, 2000 when, um, you know, a young Simon Whitfield said, Greg, come and, you know, train with me and help me get ready for the, the 2000 Olympic Games after I'd sort of been burnt by the Australian selectors and that, that, whole, that whole thing. I came over yeah. and, and we first met and hit it off so easily, so quickly. Um, that was a chapter, wasn't it? Yeah. No, it's, yeah. Um, that was a, a real... Uh, yeah, I think a real uh, moment in all of our lives and not just the gold medal, but creating that whole culture and environment uh, in Victoria over those years of that sort of relentless mm. pursuit of excellence, but also trying to take a bit more of a holistic approach as well, too. So happiness. And yeah, I do remember when you joined the squad and uh, actually a funny little story, Greg, <laughs> I don't even know if you remember this, but I actually remember meeting you for the first time in Victoria and we were sitting at uh, Simon's little micro apartment at the time where he was living. And we were having a social. I was sitting beside you on the couch and we were chatting for a while. And then Simon goes, hey, did you know that this is your coach? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, you knew me by name and by reputation, but I don't think you knew me by uh, you know, visual. And of course, this is back in 99, 2000. So um, yeah. you know, the proliferation of, uh, Facebook and all that media wasn't, uh, quite as in your face. So, yeah. It's, it's funny looking back some of those memories, because for me, one of the stark contrasts I had from the training environment I'd been in 
to being in the environment that you had created in Victoria, Canada there and the culture, like you said, was I'll never forget doing a swim workout and everybody coming into the wall and you were laughing, the athletes in all the different lanes were having a laugh and I don't think I truly laughed in training for a couple of years and it was like this, what's going on here? I thought this, you know, now that the work's happening, there's no laughter and it's all business and and for me that was the the real wake up I needed. You know, I loved the sport way before I was a professional triathlete. You know, I, I was in the sport when I was 14, 15 year old kid and just had loved it. And, but by the time, you know, I was in my late twenties there, I, it had really become work and, and that culture that was there, we, we suddenly were laughing and it's not to say I wasn't a, a determined pigheaded. You, know. yeah, you were a bit of a hothead uh, sometimes, yeah. but, but in, a, in a good way, it was always in the, you know, the pursuit of excellence for sure. And, you know, it's uh, Greg, it's, it, it definitely, um, we, we all get into uh, sport, at, you know, as youths because we're, we're pulled to some element of it. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's a passion for uh, competition. It's exciting. There's adventure going to races and, and all of that. And, and then as you go down, you know, this um, sort of pursuit of world excellence, it, I mean, it really can become pretty cutthroat and, and you do have to be, you know, amongst the best of the best and you're competing against people who want what you want, you know, ferociously. Mm. But um, one of the oldest coaching cliches is, you know, a, a happy athlete is a fast athlete. And um, there's no reason why you can't bring a certain level of joy to training and still work really, really hard, mm. you know, and it's, and it's not all, um, you know, unicorns and rainbows every day for sure. There's, there's ups and downs, uh, throughout, um, you know, the weeks and the months and, you know, you have your good sessions, your bad sessions. Hey, you're an athlete and you have a tough workout that can rock you a little bit if you're targeting a big event for sure. But, um, you know, one of the things that I do remember, um, and I think is a, a real skill as a coach is, identifying where an athlete is at and what they need right now and figuring out how to get them back into the right uh, mind space so that they can uh, start to perform again. And that's not just in races, that's in practice. And one of the things we did to you, I, I, I recognized when you came that you needed a refresh and you were burnt out and, and it had been a hard process, um, you know, with the Olympics and, and, not being selected to the team unjustly. So I might add <laughs> back in 2000, <laughs> it's all hindsight. <laughs> it's, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I don't know if you remember Greg, but we actually, one of the things we did was we, we chose some really unusual, unique events for you to go and race and have new experiences at. And one of them was this um, long distance duathlon in Japan. And, uh, and another one was the uh, infamous St. Kitts triathlon, uh, you know, which was, you know, crazy hilly and just a bit of an adventure to get there. And, you know, and the idea was to go and have a good race and, and to compete, of course, but it also was just allowing you to go to events where it put that little bit of adventure back into, uh, into your life. You know, some of that, the, the early reason of why you get into racing uh, when you're younger, reminding you that doing these events can be, um, you know, can be fun and exciting and, and, you know, while still being hard. And, uh, and also letting you go win a couple of races too, and just to get your mojo back. So that was, uh, that was kind of the early experiences there. 
that was funny. That was a uh, two thousand and one, and I remember because I did thirteen races in eleven weeks, and they were all around the world. Like you said, yeah. one weekend I was in St Kitts, another weekend I was in Japan. I was backing up races. I was and. I, I don't know that I even won in that 13. I, I may have, but I, I they, the results, like you said, weren't amazing. They weren't spectacular. But what I do remember is it had been almost two years since my last World Cup win, which was on the Sydney World Cup the year before the Olympics, and I hadn't won any World Cup in 2000. But at the end of 2001, I finally won, was back on the winning side of, of winning World Cups and, and won um, Cancun. And it mm-hmm. was that kind of transition from – you know, I often tell the story of 2000, basically all the everything that went behind the scenes and what happened with, you know, the Australian selection of, you know, the, that, that Olympic Games where I'd won the Australian Championship a couple of times before, I'd won the, the Sydney World Cup the year before and was ranked number two in the world and, and thought I had a pretty good chance of making the Australian team for the Olympics. Anyway, didn't happen. But what I got was firstly one of my very best mates, Simon Whitfield, yeah. uh, won the Olympic gold and I was there. We were in the stands together um, and that was an emotional highlight um, of my life. Uh, uh, you know, we can talk about my own career highlights, but in terms of highlights of my life, that was a really, really special moment to see your best mate running down Macquarie Street and and accelerating. You know, we knew he had the sprint finish and you and I just, I think we were already both in tears. You know, it was just a, it was a very emotional moment. The other thing that came from that was, now my wife, Laura Bennett, you know, I met her in Victoria, Canada, in yeah. this great environment that was created there. And and it's one of those things, you know, one door shuts and, and the world opens another one. And for me, that was just a really special time. As much as it was a transition and it wasn't all roses, it was a it was an incredible moment in time, that 2000, 2001 period. Um, and I look back now in Victoria, Canada, for those that haven't been to Victoria, Canada, Put it on your bucket list as a place to go train and and just enjoy the sport, you know, with Thetis Lake, Elk Lake, Mount Doug, the Commonwealth Pool. Um, it, it's just a, an amazing environment to train in. And you, you're still there, right? I am. And, um, you, you know, you're, you're still holding a couple of Strava records here in Victoria, Greg, you might, you might not know. So, uh, <laughs> every year I'll hold that up. No, there's a lot of great, uh, Greg Bennett memories, um, in Victoria for sure. Yeah. You know, when I think back to that chapter though, you know, that 2000 to 2004 stretch and, you know, trials and tribulations, um, lots of victories and challenges, but in the sort of bird's eye view of the sport, that was really I would say the Olympic professionalization of the sport happened during that quadrennial, like Mm. going into 2000, um, you know, we were all targeting Olympics and, um, you know, we had our squads and that, but a lot of it was privatized. A lot of it was not sort of in under the scope of national federations. So it was an incredible chapter too, because, uh, you know, in Victoria, we were building a national triathlon center and that had never happened in uh in our country and um, in a lot of ways we built a model that was emulated around the world because we were having so much success and when i think about the cast of athletes and characters that came through mm-hmm. um victoria canadians but internationals as well you know it was uh you know craig walton and emma snowsill and um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. bevan doherty and hamish Carter and you know like all like uh, all these uh, champions that came. And um, one of the things that I think was really um, fundamental to the success of that era was 
our developing Canadian athletes had the opportunity to train side by side and shoulder to shoulder with these really established um, athletes. And uh, so there was a learning for the athletes. You know, this is how they handle themselves in practice. Here's what the level is um, and all of that. But there was also um, building some of the, the the foundation or the core of, of, of the values and the principles of what a national training center should look like as far as, you know, the day in and day out attitude and, and the attentions to details and um, the commitment level that's expected from athletes. Mm. So, uh, you know, you were a big part of that. Um, absolutely. And, um, you know, Greg Bennett's fingerprints are uh, all over generations of Canadian athletes. <laughs> Careful still, how you phrase that these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, a, in a completely above board and uh, <laughs> way. <laughs> I know. Well, mate, we, I think you and I have reminisced enough and, and I think sure. that's it's such a great moment in our lives that I think it's great to do and, and we can do that a little bit more throughout the show. But what I want to do now is, is just so we can all get an understanding of uh, where you come from. So like, let's wind the clock back. Tell us when you found your passion for endurance sports and, and um, you know, when you realized that you had some real strengths and talents as a coach. So uh, that's a great question, Greg. Um, you know, like a lot of uh, young Canadians, I grew up playing ice hockey. And uh, by the time I was uh, 17 or so, I was the size I am now, which is, um, you know, five foot nine, 155 pounds. And uh, I wasn't going to have much of a future as a crushing defenseman in the NHL. And, and, you know, quite frankly, I just wasn't good enough. But I was looking for something else to engage in fitness. And and like a lot of people, I saw Iron Man, um, you know, on TV and it inspired me. And I thought, wow, that's like the ultimate, you know, fitness is to do a triathlon. So, you know, I signed up for one with a buddy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's actually hilarious to look back on how we prepared for that race. We had no idea what we were doing. There, there really wasn't any triathlon coaching available. Uh, you would join local groups and, and kind of figure out what you could, you know, so this was 1987. Um, so basically my buddy and I, I, I trained him just because I wanted to have someone to train with. And we did all kinds of funny things like stair running and, and, uh, um, you know, just, just making stuff up. I remember going to the pool and like kind of old ladies passing me doing breaststroke when I was doing freestyle. And the day before my first event, I actually did the entire event to make sure I could finish <laughs> before I did <laughs> before I did the event. But uh, so I went in the next day and I, uh, I finished on the podium in the junior category and uh, you know, and I was hooked because, you know, there's this great community that were very welcoming and giving me kudos. There, there might've only been three of us in the junior category, but, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, anyways, when you're young, it's, you know, you like to be recognized in that. And, and that was sort of the start. Um, after that, it was, like I said, there just was no uh, triathlon coaching out there and I wanted to have people to train with. So I just, I had good organizational skills, good people skills, and I just started bringing together groups. And then of course, they wanted somebody to figure out what they were going to do when they were there. So I started writing practices and that's, that's where it began when I was 18 years old. And, and uh, you know, I had no future vision at that point that I'm going to be a career triathlon coach and, you know, this is my calling. It was more like I just had this incredible passion for sport that I wanted to share and, and I had organizational skills. Soon after that, I started uh, university and I was studying human kinetics and sports science. And I was lucky enough to be mentored by a couple of uh, legendary run coaches in Canada, um, one of them being 
Dr. Doug Clement, who was the, the honorary mayor of the 1994 Commonwealth Games uh, that was held in uh, Victoria. And what they taught me was how to bring together groups of high-performing athletes of different ages and slightly different abilities, training for different distances as well, and how you could coordinate those groups and teach them how to work off each other and run a cohesive practices. And, you know, that was just, um, that was kind of working on my master's degree, I guess, as far as, uh, you know, in coaching and in the coaching world while studying and applying uh, sports science at the same time. Um, all the while I was coaching uh, triathletes and they were starting to do better and better and, and better athletes started to look me up. I think it was around that time that a, uh, a 14-year-old Brent McMahon <laughs> looked me up <laughs> in that era. And, and here, we, here we are, you know, this is probably a world record, but uh, 25 years later, I'm still coaching him. So that's pretty, that's pretty amazing as well. We're going to talk more about that. That's fantastic. Yeah, on, yeah <laughs> I know, I know. You know, and then uh, I think in anybody's uh, career, when they have a real breakthrough, Greg, there's, um, there is a, a moment where you take a risk, you take a personal risk. And for me, that happened in probably 1994, 95, when I had this kind of group of, I would say, provincial and some national level athletes. Um, and again, this is in an era when there's no real federation support. So it's all private and you're figuring stuff out. And I'm like, these athletes can't compete at the world level unless they get out there and they see what's happening in other countries. And they have the opportunity to step on start lines with guys from Spain or, you know, women from Germany or, or Australians or, or, or whatever. So, you know, I, I took a real personal risk and invested in getting myself and the group over to Europe to do uh, a, a, you know, a first tour in kind of the mid nineties and, some of, um, you know, the, the budding pros at that time came along. I think Brent was one of them as a 17-year-old. And um, we ended up doing that for a couple of years. And um, my, of course, I started networking and seeing what other coaches were doing in the world. And my portfolio of athletes started becoming a little bit more international as well. And um, by the time we uh, reached sort of the late 90s, um, I was coaching probably two thirds of the Canadian national team as well. And we were set up in Australia um, for our winter camp and uh, a young athlete uh, in, in the fall of uh, 99 or November 99, almost your summer, <laughs> looked me up, a uh, uh, young Canadian named Simon Whitfield was looking for a coaching option as well. And at that point he had qualified for the Olympics and uh, I think he was ranked 40th or 45th and you know, obviously had a lot of talent, was very hit and miss. And, uh, well, it, the, needless to say, we spent six months in Australia that winter and, um, he cemented his qualification. Um, <laughs> the next chapter was moving from Vancouver to Victoria two weeks before my daughter was born to establish the Canadian triathlon center in April, 2000. And you came along, uh, not long after that and the incredible push for the Olympics. So, you know, it was quite a journey. And uh, when you're in the middle of it, it just sort of unfolds and you're, you're following your passion. You're focused on helping athletes perform and develop. And you're not thinking, oh, if I do this and one day I'll coach at the Olympics. And if I do this one day, I'll coach an Olympic gold medal and, and a bunch of Ironman champions. You're just, you're just part of this, um, 
incredible process with these athletes and helping them try to unlock their own personal excellence. I think you have a unique gift in all of that is um, you, your compassion and empathy for, for athletes and you, your passion for the sport of triathlon is, and so all you've done, it's amazing how the stars align when, when you follow your passion and you stay true to your strengths. You know, for, for me, that's the, the big thing. Whatever your passion is about, if you can align those with your strengths, it's amazing what can happen. And then you've layered that with the going all in. You, you, you've taken 100% responsibility and you've said, right, what do I need to try and make this go further? You know, take the athletes to Europe, take the athletes to Australia. I mean, that's a big commitment. You know, you're, you're only in your late 20s still trying to figure out, you know, everything that's going on in the world of the sport of triathlon. And, and in that sense, you're a real pioneer. Um, it's an incredible time. And then it was almost like the Olympics then and the Olympic experience and, and Simon being the first ever gold medal for, for triathlon. That was then, let's throw some methylated spirits on the, on the fire, right? I mean, it was like, <laughs> suddenly it was like, boom, okay, Lance, you're, you're an Olympic gold medalist coach now. Um, yeah. How did that impact your life moving forward? That is a multi-layered question. <laughs> <laughs> it was a moment. It was obviously it was uh, it was one of those incredible milestones and and you know memories in your life where you're like you watch it unfold and uh, you know it's it's that old saying of uh, you know when opportunity meets preparation and and that that amazing moment was 10 years in the making, <laughs> you know, and not, not just for me, but for Simon and for everybody else who was a part of that. But, um, you know, it, it, it really was, uh, it, it impacted me in a number of ways. I mean, it, it led to this incredible boom in the sport in North America and in Canada in particular, because um, suddenly you've got this uh, sporting icon really, um, you know, that Olympics, we had three gold medals, and, uh, you know, Canada is known for their winter Olympics, not so much for their summer Olympics and, uh, you know, winning on the opening weekend of the, um, of the Sydney games in front of the opera house, uh, it really put him in the media for the entire, you know, duration of those games and, and afterwards, um, it allowed us to really cement, uh, legacy through a national center and, uh, it's, one of the things I'm really proud of is actually the the coaching education and development that came out of that as well. And over the next four years, um, a number of now world-renowned coaches came out as just budding young coaches. Uh, Joel Filios one, and um, Cliff English is another, you know, um, who really cut their teeth in Victoria and learned how to coach and got to be on deck with myself and and see people like you and and Simon and other top level athletes coach and, and what the level is or a train and, and what the level is, you know, there, you know, there also were challenges that came with that. Um, with, uh, these, the highlight of the spotlight of the Olympic gold, um, you know, brought increased pressure and expectation and more involvement as well. Um, you know, there was uh, a lot more government funding, but there's a lot of accountabilities, um, that, um, basically bring a lot more chefs into the kitchen, so to speak, you know, trying to, um, um, integrate a lot more um, coaches and other professionals and ideas. And there's, uh, of course, there's incredible opportunity there, but, um, you know, it's also uh, a lot more balls in there to keep an eye on. And, and then, uh, you know, and then guiding Simon through his next Olympics in 04 and the incredible pressure that he felt, 
Um, you know, that was a coaching learning experience in itself. And meanwhile, all my other athletes were kind of taking off at that moment too. Um, you know, Lisa Bentley was starting to win pretty much everything she entered, you know, through the 11 years that I coached her and uh, Brent was coming into his own and other athletes were having a lot of success. Um, so that was really exciting too. And it was nice to be recognized for all my hard work, you know, but I will say like personally too, Greg, um, you know, as a 30 year old, cause I, I think I was 30 or 31 when that happened, mm. you're kind of like, wow, that happened. And, and that's, mm. there's my 25 year old, 25 year coaching goal done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's next, you know, and, uh, it really, um, caused me to kind of take a step back and reflect on what coaching means to me and, and kind of getting back to some of those roots we talked about earlier about the importance of guiding young adults, you know, into the world and helping them be great athletes, but also really trying to mentor them to be great human beings as well. And, you know, the lessons of sport, um, which resonate uh, throughout your life, but, um, yeah, never, never losing that passion for why they got into it and, um, and learning how to be, you know, as they come into their own, you know, we can use Brent as another example, but other athletes too, that I coached over duration, you know, as they grow up and become young men and then men in their thirties or, or women and women in their thirties, and they start to have more accolades and renown, they're teaching them about the responsibilities that come along with that too, and how to manage their careers as responsible uh, role models and learn how to give back and how to be, um, you know, more well-rounded professionals generally, not just on the, on the race course, but, um, you know, as, as far as uh, being in front of the media and dealing with industry partners and, um, and making time for, you know, schools and kids and, and all of that as well too. And all, all the elements that, you know, I guess as a parent and having children getting a little bit older too, you know, these are all the values you'd want to impart, you know, with your own kids. In a lot of ways, as you become more established and a little bit older, you start to, you know, recognize these athletes as just like young humans trying to find their way through the world and trying to, you know, be outstanding individuals. So what gifts can you impart upon them to, to bring into the rest of their life, you know, within sport, but also outside of sport? Hmm. I, I think you, you touched on something. Um... When I had Simon Whitfield on the show very early on, he's one of the first three or four episodes, um, is really when I was trying out how to do this whole podcasting thing. I said, right, you're easy, you come on. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, we, but he, we, you know, he was, uh, he spoke with enormous vulnerability and authenticity when we spoke because, you know, he even described it as, you know, the, the other side of adulation was isolation. For, for him, he, He'd never won a World Cup. He'd, he'd had fourth, I think, at Toronto that year um, as his best ever World Cup performance. It was, and a bit like what you said, you know, he's a 25-year-old young man and suddenly he's got the one thing that everybody wanted to aspire to. Well, it was new to our sport, but it become the, it become the thing. And it was like, well, well what, what's next? And, and I, I don't think any of us had much of an idea how to manage that expectation and what comes with an Olympic gold and, and what happens to the next, you know, through the next Olympic cycle. You know, I know for me, Simon and I were, were good buddies, but then it was kind of like, I didn't really see him for a year and a half because he was so busy doing whatever he was doing with the, with the yeah. Olympic gold. He comes back in 2002. I mean, he never really left, but we, but then he kind of wanted to train 
with me at that point I was now world number one and I was like I don't want to train with you <laughs> and so we had this we had this kind of environment where it was kind of like wanting the best for each other but I was kind of like well hang on you've had your turn this is now my turn so it was kind of and look that was my own immaturity as well but I also thought he was a more talented athlete and I was the workhorse so I didn't want to drag him around so there was a little bit of that going on I mean there was I think all of these things, you know, always we can shine a, a beautiful, you know, light on it and say it was an amazing time. But there, there are some t- some bits that come out of it. You're like, oh, could have managed that a little better. We could, we we learned a lot. Let's just, le- <laughs> you know, we we all learned a lot um, about ourselves and about each other during that time. And and I think it's fun to go back and reflect a bit now. I, I think we all have matured a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, but that's you know the old the old cliche of uh, or you know in uh, professional teams where they you know they say what what happens in the locker room stays in the locker room, but you know it's it's just the reality of any life or work or relationship environment when you spend a lot a lot of time with somebody. Yeah, <laughs> you know there's there's going to be ups and downs and some dramas and some challenges for sure and. You know, in this case, you guys were both exceptional individuals um, striving for the same golden ring, and and uh, you know, there's only one of them. So, it's, you know, it's <laughs> and you had to manage these emotions for people <laughs> listening. If you haven't listened to the Simon Whitfield episode, we do both apologize to Lance on that episode, and I want to give you a formal apology now while I've got you for for I think the way I treated you probably during some of that whole period where oh. we were we were I think. Uh, our emotional desire to be the best in the world and when it wasn't happening at times it might have been taken out on you more than it should have and 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 i think again i I put it down to youth i think i did mature a little bit beyond those years but it was uh it was an interesting time but look after that you know the the simon whitfield the gold medal era the greg bennett era (laughs) you've (laughs) gone on and you created a business called life sport Mm -hmm. that has accelerated around the world. You've mm. basically become one of the biggest names in Ironman coaching. Tell me about this next phase of of the the Lance Watson era. The Lance Watson epic. epic. <laughs> what are we going to call it? It's going on still. So there's no the story, the yet. journey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, so you know, between um, uh, 2000 and 2005, I was completely committed to you know Olympic teams and building the national triathlon center. And, and then, um, my son was born, um, you know, almost five years after my daughter and having spent all that time when you're, when you're leading a, an Olympic Federation, uh, you, you know, you can be on a different continent every week, as you know, as an athlete, it's the same, um, extended training camps. Uh, and I just decided that, you know, I didn't want to miss that chapter of my son uh, coming into the world. So that was a big impetus for me, for me to make a, a switch um, prior to Olympic days, as I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I've been doing private coaching since the beginning of time. I, I often joke I've been doing, you know, online and at a distance coaching since the days of fax, you know, where you would, <laughs> you'd, you'd have to wait three or four days after the race just to get the result, you know. Oh, or, yeah, you remember that? <laughs> yeah, you call them up on the rotary phone or, or whatever. But um, so it was it wasn't a difficult transition for me to go back um, to that. And what I brought was... Um, one of, one of my projects at the National uh, Triathlon Center was to actually write the first ever level four coaching certification so that other coaches could be certified to be national team leaders and Olympic coaches, et cetera. And um, 
it was uh, it was an awesome exercise for me in um, really refining and developing my ability to to educate other coaches, and that has become, I would say, a second chapter of my career passion has been um, coaching education. So Life Sport is a group of coaches um, based across North America, and uh, we coach athletes in over forty countries worldwide. And um, one of the things I really love about working with this group is um, the the camaraderie and the professional sharing and development that's ongoing. And one of the really cool things about being a triathlon coach is it's just a bottomless well of learning and knowledge and information. <laughs> I mean, there's always something new uh, to learn and to to get up to speed on. So that's been a really um, inspiring uh, journey and process um, working with this group, and um, and then that has um, you know also evolved to more and more involvement with Ironman and after ITU coaching days, working with more and more Ironman athletes at the elite level as well, and really learning to understand and refine uh, training in that genre, and then being able to take all that um, experience and bring it back to age groupers uh, worldwide. And, you know, it's, it's really been interesting how coaching has evolved since that era and where we're at right now, where in the early days, it was kind of trying to encourage people that, you know, you deserve to have coaching and coaching is a good thing and it can really ha- help you. And um, now it's kind of evolved to, it's, it's actually quite common for amateur athletes to have um, a coach and be personally coached. And they're, are lots of great coaches out there. Uh, and it's, it's really, if you look at the development of amateur sport worldwide, the, the level of competition in amateur sport worldwide is incredible. And a big part of that is because of the proliferation and development of coaching worldwide. Uh, so there's more and more athletes in more and more countries because there's more and more Ironman events worldwide who have sought out really well um, qualified and certified coaches to help them train more professionally within the time that they have available. Mm. So you have a greater number of athletes worldwide who are actually maximizing their own personal potential. And for me, that rolls down from, you know, athletes who are trying to win or qualify for Kona and that all the way to, uh, you know, middle and back of the Packers who just want to do something um, exceptional and see what their human potential is. I mean, we're all, deserving of, of having that knowledge. So the final evolution, Greg was, um, was, uh, increasing my work with, um, Ironman as well and developing this cool platform called Ironman U and Ironman university. And basically it's, it's coaching without borders. So if you think historically about coaching education in the federations worldwide, they have been Olympic funded and Olympic driven and, and primarily prepping athletes, to race at the shorter distances. And then sometimes the long course stuff is a little bit of an afterthought or a throw in, and there's different methodologies being preached, you know, worldwide on here's how you do it. So this was an opportunity to get together with legends like Mark Allen and Dave Scott, uh, Paula Newby Fraser, Mac Dixon, and put together what we thought was a thorough body of, you know, foundational training knowledge that could be shared um, worldwide via Ironman with the ultimate outcome of particularly reaching farther corners of the, of, of the world where maybe they don't have that long, rich history of endurance sport and coaching and training, you know, these emerging sort of nations and economies. 
and giving them that baseline education as well on here's how you can train yourself and also help mentor, train, encourage new athletes into the sport to, you know, be able to do these incredible events and have that level of enjoyment, fitness, and empowerment that comes through, uh, you know, tackling and finishing an Ironman and, and hopefully eventually racing an Ironman. So, you know, chapter one was high performance athletes and uh, taking big personal risks. Chapter two was building a national federation um, based training center and professionalization of the Olympic sport. And chapter three has been coaching, education, and mentorship and, and trying to share that knowledge and information as broadly as possible worldwide. So, so there's your journey. Your, no, it's your epic. I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to, it's a page turner, mate. I'm looking forward to the next chapter. So I don't know where we go from here, but I didn't want to go into politics, but yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Let's so do that. I, I, I guess, I guess the, 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 the next question is, and, and, and you, you touched on something, you know, yourself, Paul and Newby Fraser, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, Matt Dixon all came together and, and put this university together. But all of you have different coaching styles and methodologies. How were you all able to collaborate? And I guess the second part to that question is who what would you say your coaching style or methodology is and 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 where did you know who influenced you, I guess, on on how you coach? There's a lot in that question. Uh, I'm yeah, sorry. The about big that. One, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start the first one with, with uh, the group of you all getting together and how did you agree upon a, a coaching product? Well, uh, you know, that, that's, that's probably a little bit of a bigger philosophical question. And, um, you know, having, I guess, the benefit of a longer term vision of the sport, you recognize that there's more than one right way to coach an athlete. And, um, you know, the mental part is, is huge. Um, putting together meaningful progressions, um, slicing and dicing the individual needs of the athlete, et cetera. And, uh, you know, some, some coaches will have more, um, you know, aerobic volume oriented programs. Some coaches will, um, focus on, uh, you know, threshold and, and, um, anaerobic pathways, uh, more, et cetera, higher, you know, volumes of swimming, biking and running according to what your philosophy is, et cetera. But, um, what we are able to do is, um, essentially, come together as a group and contribute and vet each other's information. And we also understood that this was meant to be a meaningful foundation for people taking this course so that they could come away and they would have different um, tastes or flavors of our different personalities and coaching styles. Hmm. But ultimately you know, it's founded in a lot of the basics of exercise, physiology, strength, and nutrition. And there's opportunity for coaches doing the program to um, figure out where their methodology might fit in, you know, through within these sort of foundational basics. So if anybody's taken the course, it's actually an awesome experience because it's like one of those multimedia um, learning tools where there's, you know, some written stuff and video and you can um, you've got some interactive things and the little quizzes and, and then, then it'll run videos of, um, you know, uh, us coaches giving case studies. And that gives some different people observing an opportunity to see that, you know, there is more than one way of right to do it. And, uh, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, just being, um, a, you know, a, a solid human being and a, and, a, and a really good leader 
and then having belief in your program and, and staying the course. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was actually, it was a great learning experience for me working with <laughs> those legends and, and picking their brains a, a little bit too. I think we all came out to better coaches as a result of it. Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. I mean, I think that's it. We're all continuing to learn. It's like you said, starting off in the 80s, no one really knew what they were doing. Um, oh, remember know, they were... Racing Ironman, and they'd have to stop and get on the scale, and <laughs> no one there. Their, their, their friends were following them in the, uh, you know, the motorhome and giving them uh, oranges, and you know, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. it was the Wild West back then for sure. It was, I mean, it was Ironman was born from a crazy bet. <laughs> you know, I mean, so. I mean, even when I've had Dave Scott and Mark Allen both on the show separately, you know, Mark Allen, the big takeaway would be his his mindset and his ability to find neutral, you know, and. Uh, yes. He's uh, he's quite uh, deep in the way he really you know manages his mind and his emotions and everything else. And then I had Dave Scott on, and wow, he just is an incredibly uh, scientific approach. Nutrition, he gets it. He really understands it. You know, I remember thinking it was like I was trying to drink from a fire hose with the amount of you know information that he had pouring out of me and it's and, it, and just those two if i look at those two it's kind of like wow it's it's really yin and yang almost in their approach of how to do the sport so it's just oh, interesting really, to see how you all came together it really is and and to be you know sort of you know um backstage or behind closed doors with those guys and um and see and being able to share information and knowledge and uh, you know, sometimes Dave will uh, will drill into stuff to the nth degree, and then uh, we'll all just sort of sit there. And there's crickets. <laughs> like, did you get Did you get what he yeah, said? <laughs> so, uh, can you communicate to the, that to the rest of us human beings in a consumable way? And then, uh, and then, of course, Mark, uh, you know, the Zen master, and and um, yeah. I mean, it's like he dedicated his career to basically finding that sense of you know flow. They call in sports psychology. Mm-hmm. Of, Dr. Chiksamahai, state of flow. That's right. That's I mean, right. You, you, you must, you're still a groupie though to, to tell me, trust, you, you're in there going, oh, I can't believe I'm getting to sit here and hang out with these guys. I would have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, you're in the presence of greatness for sure. I know, I know. It's just teasing you. I, sometimes I'll joke when I'm on there that, uh, you know, between the three of us, we've got uh, 12 uh, Kona wins. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was like when I had uh, Tim O'Donnell on the show and he was talking about Kona last year and he said, well, I'm in a group of, there's three of us and there's three gold medals amongst the three of us and I don't have any. You know, that was with Jan Fidel had one and Alistair Brownlee had two and he's like, hmm, maybe I'm not in the right place. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But, no, it, you know, it, it is a special thing to be a part of that group too. And, and, no, and, and well-deserved mate. Well-deserved. Oh, I'm only, I'm only teasing. I know that you started the sport in 87, like you mentioned, that's kind of when I did. And, and that's when the battles with Mark and Dave were happening and anybody that started the sport back then, it's just hard not to be in awe of those two. And like you said, Paul and Yubi Fraser for everything she did in the sport. But, um, and then, you know, I asked you earlier, you, your biggest influences that you've had for your coaching style, has there been a particular 
coach from another sport or has it just been a work in progress learning um, yeah, as you go? So that, that's, that's a question that I've been asked many times and I've often reflected upon. And um, probably my biggest influencers, I would say, uh, were, were the early days at, at university and coaching you know, as an assistant coach of uh, track and cross country at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and working with these national caliber um, run coaches. And uh, you've known me for a long time, Greg, and I've always had a, a, a special passion for running and distance running as well. And mm. it's something that um, I've taken a lot of pride in and skill set. But uh, a lot of it had to do with just how they um, manage those groups and um, how they manage the different personalities. Uh, you know, there were there were some world class runners training with 20 year old university students and, um, different times of life, different agendas, um, different life priorities. So that, that was, that was huge for me. That being said, um, you know, I, it's, it's interesting, but I, I, you know, my career developed in a time where there just weren't a, a lot of triathlon coaches and, um, it was hard to find, other triathlon coaches to emulate because there wasn't really anybody else uh, doing it. So I think a lot of the early influencers, uh, you know, there were some single sport coaches, particularly mm -hmm. here in Victoria who had had success, um, you know, who taught me different things technically. Uh, but a lot of the early influencers were um, just a lot of the athletes that I worked with and sort of, you know, learning the sport through those, through those early guinea pigs, <laughs> you know. And well, it's true, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you you constantly, I think, nearly, you know, I've had yourself now, and and Dan Lorang, and and Cliff English, and Joel Filial, and I think the one common theme between all of you is kind of learning from the athletes as much as teaching them. You're always, it's like this, you're learning as you go from each of the the different athletes, and that's why, like yourself, you've been in the sport for. 30 plus years is is constantly learning from every single person whether they're an age group or simon whitfield olympic gold medalist all the way through they're all teaching you something as you go and you're developing and you're learning from their performances on a race course performances in training their mood swings whatever it is um, you're constantly learning i mean it's it's true. yeah it, you know I've, I've, yeah. I've worked with some of the biggest personalities and um most successful athletes in the sport and you know there's there's a book in there somewhere eventually greg but there's um the range of characters and the way that they would there's a lot of similarities but there's so many unique elements as well too and what motivated them um where they got their confidence and and how the things that you would do as a coach would land on different athletes would you know would, would stick with them and would help them. And, and there were mistakes I've made over the years too, where maybe I, you know, said the wrong thing at the wrong time or, um, you know, gave them bad advice or, or whatever. I mean, we're all as coaches, we're human beings as well. And we're going to make mistakes, mm. but we're always, you know, we're always there with the intent of trying to help the athletes as much as we possibly can. So having worked with now, you know, dozens of different elite athletes, and um, literally hundreds of amateur athletes. Uh, one of the things you get really, really good at is actually being able to almost profile an athlete quite quickly and identify mm. uh, where they're coming from and what their strengths are and, and, and what they need. So, uh, yeah, the athletes were uh, my learning ground and, and um, 
they were my biggest influencers for sure. Uh, I'd like to kind of just move on a little bit here, just and, and get a little bit on specific on some of your training and, and just style. And I recognize that every athlete, like you said, everybody's unique and different uh, and similar in many ways. Is there a, a, an approach um, that you use as a guide to build out a training program? Um, basically, would you would you kind of build a program off focusing on aerobic? early in the season and then adding some strength, some VO2 work and then some specific work? Or how is it that you, when you look at an individual, if they come on board to work with you, is there an approach that you use? Is Would you look at aerobic endurance as the, the fundamental or how do you build an athlete's program out? Well, that's a great question. And honestly, um, it's uh, – you know, everybody is not an individual completely because we're all human beings with lungs and muscles and <laughs> two arms <laughs> and two legs, et cetera. And so there are a lot of similarities for sure. Um, but you do, one of the great things about triathlon, as I alluded to earlier, is that there are so many facets to it. So you, you'll have athletes, you know, I think about someone like Lindsay Corbin, who, um, you know, was an, an age grouper when she came to me and, and she had grown up um, running cross country and, and skiing. So, you know, big engine, tough, knew how to push yourself, you know, very raw as far as skill set. So with an athlete like that, it's not about, oh, I'm just going to give this athlete, uh, you know, volume and see how they react. You're having to create opportunities, learning opportunities technically throughout the year and having to isolate skills and focus on developing elements of their game uh, as an emphasis at different times of the year. Um, and I remember also, you know, early in her career, um, probably her second year as a professional, you know, and Lindsay is someone who I, I brought from age group all the way up to fifth place in, in Kona in Hawaii. So it was an incredible journey. And I remember talking to her in her second year and she hadn't even done Ironman yet. And I said, this year, we're going to, we're going to have you race probably more than you should. And we're going to accept that you're not always going to get the best results from your races. But what I really want you to do is go and race against as many great women as you possibly can so that you can see how they manage themselves on the race course, how they handle themselves around events. Um, but also, I want you to network with them as much as you possibly can before and after the events. And if you have a chance to do a prep session with them, if you have a chance to get a sense of their mental space before races and this, this year is about learning. And I guess if I were going to try and be succinct on answering your question, I'm always trying to think about what is the long-term outcome and, and best pathway for this athlete. And I think one of the pitfalls a lot of coaches can fall into is how do I train this athlete for this race coming up right now? How can I get the most out of this athlete two months from now? You know, so, you know, it's kind of like a, um, you know, like in professional sports where, you know, if an athlete, if a team doesn't perform, the, the coach gets fired. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of times there are coaches who are coaching and, and they're, they're coaching from a sense of concern around, you know, losing their job or losing their athlete or whatever. So they're really focused on ramping this athlete up and having them crush it at this one event. Whereas I've always been focused on what is the best thing to do for this athlete at this point in their career right now so that they can be in the long term the best athlete that they possibly uh, mm. can be. So in some cases, it may be periodizing their year that um, we're just going to ride your bike a lot for the next 
six months and other parts of your game might kind of take a step back initially, but two years from now, you're going to be the best rounded, most well-rounded athlete possibly mm. that you can be in two years. It's an interesting one to look long-term and uh, obviously, you know, Cliff English uh, and he's now in the NCAA program in the United States and, and, and one of the big weaknesses for a lot of the American elite I, I think has been the fact that they've had four years doing a singular sport at these universities and these universities are giving these athletes scholarships and in return they want results. Yes. And when you're dealing with young men and women, that, that 18 to 22 type age group, those really very important developing years um, and you're crushing them. It, 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 I was asking him that and that kind of question, and and God bless him. You know, he's basically coming from the right approach. He says, "Look, I've, I've, I want to build these. I'd love them to be on Olympic teams in the year, you know, 20, 30, 30 whatever it's going to be." <laughs> but yeah. um, he, he basically came from the right, exactly the same thing you're saying is, "Look," and and it was kind of the influence you had on my career, if you think about it. It was. Uh, I had a big engine. I had some reasonable talent. I, I'd worked incredibly hard and had s some success, but I was fried. So we basically spent a couple of years, just like you said earlier, enjoying the sport. Okay. You know, it's like, whoa, 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 back it off, back it off. I remember training far less with you than I had, thinking that's not enough, that's not enough, that's not enough, you know, that it wasn't about the training. It was about freshening up the body and the mind to approach the rest of my career and, and fortunately I then went on to have another 14 years of, of racing professionally and and probably the best years of my life came after that you know so th it was that that importance of having that mindset of a long-term approach um, and I think that's your gift that you have that your squads and the athletes that you work with love the sport and you don't burn athletes out and I, yeah. and I think that's that's probably if you said something that you should be most proud of, I would say, I mean, we can talk about gold medals and championships, but I think the fact that your athletes still love the sport is truly commendable. I think that, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks, Greg. And that, that's always been um, really important to me. I mean, that's why I got into the sport. It was a passion for the sport. And, you know, and that's, um, that's what I try and share and impart on my athletes as well. And, you know, that point in career, in your career, that's, that's what you needed, uh, at that point. And, um, you know, and if I look at other athletes and where they're at in their career, they need different things at different points in their career as well, too. But, um, you know, it's uh, I think if you talk about longevity and, and maybe it's a good opportunity to talk a little bit about Brent and Brent McMahon and, and mm. the, the coach athlete journey. Um, you know, that's just such a rare opportunity as a coach to be able to do almost like a longevity study on an athlete and see how the work and the impact and the influence you have on an athlete as a teenager, how that plays out into their Olympic career, which then plays out into their 70.3 and, and ultimately they're, you know, becoming a world-class Ironman athlete and um, being able to take that athlete through the proper developmental steps and not rush them has allowed Brent to, in my mind, um, absolutely maximize his potential at the longer distances. Mm. And um, still competing, you know, he's, he's just turned 40, believe it or not. So it's still going good. <laughs> but, I, you know, I do rem I remember recognizing in his early 20s, I, I even remember having a conversation with him once and saying, you know, Brent, that, you know, he's probably 21, 22. And I was looking at his, his data relative to um, 
you know, Simon and some of the other Olympic guys. And I'm like, you, you're, you're running your long runs too quickly. You know, what are you doing? And then looking at his file and going, wow, his heart rate's really low. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then going, okay, this guy is going to be a long distance athlete. He's, he's a very good short distance athlete, but he, he's going to be a long distance athlete. He's incredibly genetically efficient aerobically, but being able to recognize that and not saying, okay, well, let's start training long and hard now. Let's make sure that we finish developing those threshold pathways and have you learn the level of sport intelligence that you need to have to thrive and survive, you know, in ITU and at the Olympic level, that quick decision-making being able to take that time to develop him completely as an athlete. And then, fostering him into the longer distances so that he can be able to, you know, independently make decisions in long days of racing and good ones and maximize his success. That's, it's, yeah, it's been a, a unique and, and special journey for sure. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's something I wish all coaches could experience because, uh, I don't think there's a, like you said, I don't think there's a coach athlete relationship that spanned 25 years and, um, and had the success, you know, and, and I, I look at someone like Brent and like you said, I think you've optimized his abilities because he was a phenomenal swimmer, technically very gifted on the bike um, and, and rode a bike well, very well for, for ITU. His run was there or thereabouts. It wasn't, uh, you know, a Simon Whitfield type. It wasn't a sub 30-minute run split that we see solid, today, but it was it was yep. solid run that would, would get him onto those Olympic teams and and – and, and race very well but i would have agreed with you i think very very early on uh, it, it always looked like he would be more suited to the ironman and i think on his debut did he go like a 755 or something ironman that's right yeah so his debut ironman he won in arizona and it, it was a, it's it was a world record for a fastest debut uh ironman <laughs> of all time and uh so yeah, no, it was uh, that, that that was just another one of those beautiful moments um you know one of those affirmations and uh I had a funny little story around that, Greg, um, you know, as a coach, when you're out on a course coaching an athlete, you know, you can't ride alongside them or anything. So you have a moment to communicate to an athlete, right? And what you're doing is you're visualizing, what am I going to say to this athlete? So, you, you know, you're in the zone too, as a coach, what am I going to say to this athlete when I have that moment to communicate something, you know, are you going to give them a time split? Are you going to give them a technical cue reminder? Are you going to cheerlead them? You know, are you... And I remember he, so he's winning this race and he, and he's winning it handily. Like he's going to win the race. And, um, I realize that if he can run, you know, a, a decent closing 10 K he's going to go under eight hours. And I'm also thinking, I'm not sure that he recognizes because he's brand new to Ironman. I don't know if he recognizes the significance of that. <laughs> and, um, and, um, you know, or he would be able to process it at that moment. And you're thinking, and he's deep in the hurt box because anybody who's ever done an Ironman knows what the last 10 K of the run feels like. I mean, you're basically running on your femurs, your muscles aren't working anymore and it's painful. <laughs> and I just, I remember just, you know, as a coach, you never want to have to unnecessarily crack the whip on an athlete in an Ironman, especially towards the end. And I remember waiting for him to come up and I remember saying, Brent, he goes, I know this is really hard right now, but if you can run four minute kilometers to the end, you'll break eight hours. 
And, and he looked at me sidelong and in, in, in the most like fragile, weak, you know, like, um, gut, gut level voice, he just looks at me sidelong and he goes, never mind. <laughs> That's all he can muster up. <laughs> and, uh, and then of course I saw him at the finish and, you know, once he'd settled down uh, and regrouped a bit, he was, he was really grateful to have that feedback and he, he got what it meant, you know, in the week or the two after, but, oh man, sometimes you have to make tough decisions on a, on a race course when you're a co- I mean, I remember pulling Lisa Bentley off the, the course in Hawaii with her ruptured appendix, you know, I mean, she was in the top 10 at Ironman Hawaii and she was running hunkered over to the side and, just say, you got to stop. You're going to hurt yourself, you know, but that's not an easy call to make as a coach. Mm-hmm. That's awful. I'm still stuck on telling Brent he has to run. I know, I know. <laughs> you know, I can't run that fast anymore. Oh, I know. Okay. Little of an eye, man. For- <laughs> yeah. Well, I probably, I probably just, you know, had 20 athletes who were thinking about looking me up for coaching, just uh, change their mind right <laughs> I'm there. I'm not going to him. I'm not going to him. Try I'm going to try and make run faster in the last week. <laughs> I tell you what, it's worth it though. That was, uh, I think we were all so excited for Brent. I think he'd, um, he'd paid his dues to the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That was one where you felt like he's a young guy that, you know, I think there's often people say they're a professional triathlete and it sounds very glamorous, um, but they don't realize that for, for the most part, a lot of professional triathletes are, you know, basically racing to pay their, you know, rent for that week and some food. And, and it really is a hand to mouth type type job. And Brent wasn't always that level, but he he's had his time of scrapping and then to, to come through and have that moment. Sleeping in airports and living off energy bars, you know, whatever yeah. you can yeah, yeah. There definitely was that chapter and um you know it's sometimes it's uh i mean if i ever have a young athlete and they're talking about you know the professional career they want to have and all the money they're going to make and that i'm just like if you want to make money you know you probably should do something different you know this is yeah. about let's let's you know go down this sort of journey of um, personal excellence and you have this one chapter in life to see what you're made of and what you can do and, and making the best decisions that you can possibly make to mm-hmm. go as fast as you can. And then after that, you got the rest of your life to make money. <laughs> exactly. If you're doing this for money, you're doing it for the wrong reason, people. I mean, look, there, there's been a few that along the way have had some decent, you know, sponsors and prize money come, but, but honestly, it's uh, you do it for the love and, and then like anything, you do it for the right reasons and, and it's amazing how the stars align. But how much, you mean, we've talked about, Brent and Lisa and your involvement on the sideline. How much are you involved with your athletes once they're at races in terms of them pacing the bike and run? How much influence are you having on that? Or how, are you just saying, look, you know what to do? Or is every athlete different? Well, I would say, you know, 95% or 98% of the job is done by the time the athlete gets to the start line. Uh, in the sense that, you know, sometimes I'll have people go, oh man, are you nervous or how are you feeling, you know, during the race? And I'm like, no, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's now in the athlete's hands. Like they, you spend all this time preparing them and educating them and walking them through their mental preparations and talking about pacing targets and numbers and, and, and discussing different potential competitive dynamics and who might do what, where, and then that kind of thing. Um, the most you can do on race day is maybe relay a, a little bit of information about 
where they're at or, um, or give them, like I said earlier, some technical reminders on how to move efficiently or maybe a mental reminder on being in the right mind space. But, um, you know, a, a great coach will be thorough in preparing their athlete before they get to the race and trying to think through as many scenarios as possible and giving them as complete of a skill set as possible so that when they, when they toe the line, um, they're just going to go out and make the very best decisions that they can in the field of play. And, you know, and, and triathlon is, uh, is, it's especially in long distance and non-drafting. I mean, it's, it's history, it's an independent sport, you know, and you're supposed to figure out how to manage the course yourself. So, but yeah, there's been times, um, a, a great little story was uh, coaching Chris Lieto in Hawaii and, um, he'd had a, you know, Chris was one of the all time great riders in our sport. And, uh, you know, he came off the bike in second place. And, uh, I remember waiting for him at mile 10 at the top of Polani Hill, that nasty hill on the, on the marathon course in Hawaii. And, and, um, you know, I, I remember, uh, I, I saw him and then he saw me and then he immediately started walking and came over to me. And I'm like, at that moment, I was like, Oh, I wish you didn't see me <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's like, you can see, cause they're, you know, sometimes athletes are just so raw and so, um, just broken down in those moments. They're just almost operating on instinct. They're not thinking. Mm. And, uh, and he's just, he was just like, I just don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it, he basically was contemplating stopping because he was feeling so bad, you know, and some athletes have passed him. And I, <laughs> I, I lost my cool a little bit. I looked him in the face and I said, Chris, you're having to race your career, get going. And he just was like a, it was like a military command. <laughs> he just, he saw the, the expression on his face change and he just started running again. And, you know, he came ninth that day in, at Ironman world championships. And that was his first top 10. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, they even did a, a magazine article on it afterwards about tough loving and that kind of thing. But that was an example of where, you know, as a coach, I positively, well, I almost negatively impacted his race because he stopped, but I, but I got him going again because I happened to be at the right place um, at the right time. But, um, but yeah, it's a lot of variables out there. And that's great. You almost, it sounds like you almost shocked yourself. You're like, Whoa, did I just tell you? <laughs> well, it was a gut reaction, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Right reaction. And I, he probably fed off my passion as well too. It was like a little, of course. Quick, but, uh, yeah, I mean, this, you, you've kind of just touched on one of my favorite areas to talk about in endurance sport, and that's the the mental side and the mental strategies. And, and you yeah. mentioned it just a little bit before, you know, preparing them physically and mentally for the race, and then your job is done. Mm. What are some of those strategies that you're using with, you know, your athletes um, in preparing them, you know, for for the big event, you know, someone like myself is uh, tends to be a far a rather emotional, passionate athlete, and tends to be oh, yeah. needed to calm down. And, and someone like Laura has been fantastic throughout my life and <laughs> career um, yeah. in managing those expectations and outcomes and all those kinds of things. Because I think I'm very very hard on myself. How are you working with athletes like that? Uh, well, a lot of it happens in training, of course, and um, mental training is training and, and it's mental rehearsal and it's practice. And if you don't do it, you um, you lose your edge, you, you get less sharp. Um, I also try and teach my athletes to be a little bit systematic about how they mentally prepare to. You know, a lot of times as athletes, when you're training, you know, you're visualizing anyway and you're thinking about your race and you're thinking about how you're moving that day. So a lot of it will happen organically, but creating structure so that you can prepare in a systematic way 
and identifying different elements that you need to think about. So often I'll talk to my athletes about, first of all, emotional preparedness and really thinking the day through and the course through from what I call the foundation, which is being emotionally prepared. And that's basically is encapsulated with the kind of conversations you want to have with yourself, the kind of mental space you want to have, um, you know, whether you want to be super emotionally, um, you know, aroused or stimulated, or if you want to be like really relaxed, depending on where you need to be on that continuum and having strategies for regrouping. And then I'll have them go through and I'll have them think of, think of the race technically and tactically. So thinking the race through and, you know, how, how they want to move efficiently, um, visualizing, um, being super fluid and economical in the right places, thinking realistically about how the race is going to feel and then how they're going to deal with it within that skill set. And then, you know, the last level is off is starting to think about, you know, what, how you might react, um, in a racing environment. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, and this is with a lot of elite athletes too, is a lot of them will never get to that level where they can actually compete at the highest level tactically because that emotional foundation crumbles, i.e. they get stressed, they get down on themselves, they start having that negative talk, etc., and they derail themselves. So if that's not set, then they can't actually execute that, that um, tactical racing element. And Greg, I often tell a story about you <clears throat> to some of my elite athletes now. Uh -oh. <laughs> now. This is one of my all-time favorites. And I'm, actually, I can't remember the athlete you were racing. Uh, I believe he was, this was your World Cup win in um, Cancun. And I remember the two of you had broken away in the race. And it was a windy day. And you had agreed between the two of you to take 400-meter pulls, essentially. So you were pulling at the front of the run. And then he was pulling. So you would share the work and keep away from the next group, you know, which was... Uh, Sometimes you have these temporary sort of allegiances that happen in races. But I remember you telling me the story afterwards. Um, there was a kind of a, a little side uh, hotel ramp you had to run up with a hill about a kilometer from the finish. And he'd gone to the front and you started making these whimpering noises behind him like you were in a lot of pain, right? And he kept oh, pressing yes. But he was leading into the wind and you were goading him into pressing the pace while he was breaking the wind for you. And then I remember you launched past him up this little hill, got a gap, and that's how you won the race. Well, for me, the takeaway and the lesson to these developing athletes, and I, and I love telling that story, was that you were in a place where you were so mentally and emotionally ready and prepared that you could then go to the next level of competing and actually playing the game of triathlon, right? Mm -hmm. If you were mired in self-talk and self-doubt and you're thinking about how hard it is and, and um, you know, that guy's so strong and I don't know if I did enough work to get ready for this. If you're having those kind of conversations with yourself, you don't get to the point where you can start, you know, kind of messing with the guy, right? Like playing those little games, those little mind games. So, gosh, you've, you've brought back such a fond memories. Thank you for sharing that story. I honestly, I remember the race very clearly, but I forgot all of that. And I, 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 I was, I do remember doing that. There were several times in my, um, my career where I did sort of make a, a kind of a gentleman's agreement that we would take, you know, a two or 400 meter turn or, or whatever else. And I remember, I actually remember doing it once with Andrew Johns. Uh, great, great from Great Britain, and or was it, and and it was Miles Stewart. It was at the Hamburg uh, World Cup or Hamburg World Series, whatever it is, back in two thousand and two. And I felt fantastic. I felt yes. absolutely fantastic. And 
and I remember running and we were all, the three of us had, we were now about a kilometer into the run and I said, okay, guys, let's 400 meter turns. Come on. And both of them said, I can't. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine when two of your peers right next to you say they can't take a turn, how suddenly you just feel like <laughs> Superman. <laughs> yes. And, and I just took off and it was kind of like, whoa, you know, it was that I kind of. Uh, playing you and they really can and they just want you to keep leading. <laughs> ah, yeah, they could have played me. That's true. Well, I, thankfully, they, I did play. I did win that one. But but it was funny. I do remember the whimpering sounds I was doing behind that poor guy. I don't remember that guy's name, actually. But um, it, uh, that was that was a moment, actually, back that one. Gosh, Cancun, because it had been so long between drinks for a decent win and, and finally having that win was like oh that was a breakthrough for sure that was the beginning of the next chapter of your career. it really was it really really was so thank you for sharing that story it really really was a special time and thank you for sharing all that on the mental strategies because it, uh, i think there's so much learning in all of that for all of us um and not just in racing in life i think that's uh that's it's just absolutely fantastic and i was going to well let, let's do this let's talk a little bit about nutrition Sure. Now, <laughs> this is, I was going to skip over it, but then I'm like, you know what? No, you, you seem to have a pretty good handle on a lot of this. What sort of advice can you give for, you know, training nutrition versus racing nutrition in everyday life? I mean, it's, it's a difficult mm-hmm. topic these days. It, it really is. And again, this is where having that sort of bird's eye view of 30 years of observing sport and trends and patterns come and go. And, you know, as a coach, I've always been, um, reluctant to draw jump into a new philosophy because um you don't want to fully experiment on athletes <laughs> you know with the latest greatest and uh, i think a lot of times the athlete mentality is looking for the latest um you know they all want to do so well right so they're always looking for that silver bullet or that little extra mm. you know whether it be a supplement or uh you know an eating methodology uh, etc and you know a few years back everyone was going paleo and a lot more people are going vegetarian and vegan now and it's it and there and and it's all awesome and it, you know I think the greatest thing about adhering to a philosophy around eating is it really makes you start paying attention to what you put in your body mm-hmm. and um, you know you'll see a lot of athletes will start to uh, um, feel a lot healthier feel a lot better and they'll attribute it to being you know um, a, a vegetarian or um, you know being gluten free or etc and um, my takeaway from that is, you know, eat whole foods, um, <laughs> eat organic where you can, um, you know, take time to um, prepare your meals before you train, but mostly just pay attention to what you're putting in your body uh, on, a, on a regular basis. I don't believe that there is a silver bullet. Training exercise physiology always goes back to, you know, carbs is a uh, quick burning energy, um, protein for recovery and, and fats is fuel and sustainable fuel and, and important to keeping our immune system strong. So, mm. so, you know, keeping it balanced. And then of course there's a whole nother conversation around, you know, performance nutrition and what you eat and drink on the bike through a long distance triathlon, because, um, yeah, it's the cliche is it's the fourth event, but it really is how you unlock your, or, or show off your, fitness or your performances by figuring out your your performance protocol out there on the race course. 
Yeah, which is very different for every athlete, it's like you said. It's um, and I think I just had um, a guest on by the name of Dr. Ara Sapaya, a brilliant man, absolutely brilliant. Works with all the PGA golfers and LPGA and and some of the professional tennis players, and uh, his education is just unbelievable. But anyway, when I when we were discussing nutrition, he's actually a big advocate of starting to look at this, you know, ancestral health and understanding our genetics more and more and more and look i know we're only scratching the surface in terms of understanding genetics but you know he's from malaysia and he's and 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 india is his family tree and basically so near the equator and they all tend to eat more carbohydrates and that's how their bodies you know feel better and he he describes you know somebody from scandinavia is maybe used to a more higher fat diet for the colder winters and blah, 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 blah. And if you look at the, you know, go back hundreds of years, that's how your genes are made up of, you know, this ancestral health. It's actually a fascinating area that I'm going to start probably, you know, doing a little bit more homework on because I feel like all of us are still trying to get this, like you said, whether it's paleo or vegan or whatever it is, trying to go, well, what is right for me? And should I be intermittent fasting? And should I be doing da-da? And it's like, well, hang on what's right for you might not be right for me and we have to look at a very individual approach and and i think you said it very well i think it's the one thing it's doing is it's drawing attention that people are actually focused on what they're putting in and in doing so they're increasing their level of feel they're they're starting to notice how they feel when they eat something they're starting to notice how they feel if their blood sugar goes up and then drops down or you know their insulin spikes and you know I think it gone to the days, you know, the eighties and nineties where we were just like, yeah, it was piling the carbohydrates and, and away we go. And, um, you know, Dave Scott said it well on the show. He's like, <laughs> I had to go back and apologize to everybody that I preached to that we should be having, you know, these carbohydrate parties and, and, and yeah. pasta parties and everything <laughs> else. Loading up. Yeah. No, no carbs for a week and then just hammer the carbs, you know, oh, yes. yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And that goes right into that looking for that silver bullet, you know, like doing something mm. radical. <clears throat> yeah. You know, the whole idea of ancestral um, nutrition and, and um, you know, what our bodies can tolerate is, is really, really fascinating. And of course I've observed that, for years and years worldwide working with athletes from, from different areas. And, you know, I've had athletes who, uh, you know, can't eat, um, you know, gels or, um, they're like, um, their body won't process like really, um, sweet items for instance. And it's, you know, it's, it's been, um, trying to discover what works for those different athletes. And it, and it makes a world of sense because you're coming from, you know, different, uh, um, availabilities of different food products according to what's you know caught or grown in your area so mm. yeah mm. yeah I oh, that. it's an interesting topic that i think you um you have one of the greatest geneticists um in the world living in toronto there dr mansu Mohammed, who was on this show and he read all my genetics out on one of the podcasts which was really fun for me and kind of scary <laughs> but yeah. but just an absolutely brilliant brilliant man he's originally from the west indies so has that very cool accent you know and uh but but it was fascinating that's kind of when i i really started diving into to more of this trying to trying to understand it and i i think looking at the future of coaching um you know i was asked this question and and i kind of said i think you know understanding your dna your genetics is going to become more and more important what do you think what are your thoughts on, on the future of coaching athletes 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that whole controversial topic of gene doping potentially in the future as well, right? But um, mm. yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, it's um, we have this ever evolving knowledge and understanding of the human body and um, um, sports science, and there's a reason that human beings keep you know going uh, further and and faster and higher and etc. Because um, you know we're understanding how the body functions. Um, it, it's been really interesting, you know, you talk about this year and, um, some of the cultural evolutions in the way that we train as well, you know, being forced by the pandemic and, and mm -hmm. really shifts in sociology. And, um, you know, prior to things, uh, sort of shutting down, there already was a, a growing trend for people to start, you know, wanting to train, um, you know, indoors and remotely and setting up their own space and, uh, networking and you see you know, companies like Peloton and that who are starting to capitalize that. And, and then, you know, um, surveys from Strava, you know, who, who have like a massive amount of data they can crunch. Um, that was one of the hugest cultural shifts in sport in uh, 2019 was the move to sort of, you know, indoor training and cycling um, you know, platforms like, you know, Zwift and Ruby and all that kind of thing. So now what's happened over the last um, six months is we've all been trained really to start video conferencing and um, interacting on, um, you know, Skype and zoom and, and all of these things. And the fitness industry was sort of like idling in the driveway. And now it's really taken off that, that, um, you know, there's, there's just a growth and proliferation of this sort of online uh, interactive live interactive um, training that's coming and, and, Quite frankly, it's this is. I think this is here to stay. Is um, this is sort of cutting edge in um, sport and triathlon and that. You know, within my business, um, we've started doing um, you know basically live online smart trainer training sessions with Zoom and with Swift and and what we're seeing and what I almost didn't anticipate was how we're actually building this incredible sense of community between people who live in all different corners of the world, you know, and it, it, it's feeling a lot like going to a regular bike workout in the past where they sort of the cast of character shows up, you know, the, the <laughs> hammerhead and the person who asked too many questions and the, 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 the silent person who just, you know, does the work and hasn't had their coffee yet. Leave me alone. Right, right. <laughs> it's like texting in the middle of an interval or whatever. You know? So there's just, we all get to know each other and what, what we do, you know, professionally and, and um, having the different personalities contribute in that. And, and uh, where's so, that community? How, how how would I find that if I want to join you guys for a ride? Uh, it's a, it's very cleverly named. It's uh, called Lance Watson Tri Club. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Yeah, easy to remember. Easy to remember. Um, yeah. And in fact, this is something that we've been doing throughout the pandemic um, as a way of giving back to the community. So it's it's been in beta, but it's been no charge and continues to be no charge. And what we're trying to do is create an opportunity or a place for people to go who maybe, um, you know, I've had a little bit of financial hardship um, because of work limitations, that kind of thing. Um, a, a safe place for new athletes to come and experiment with the, you know, with the sport. And that's been really um, something that caught me off guard is how many people we have coming to us who have actually never done a triathlon or have never had coaching before. And I think what happens is because they can do it in their own home initially, uh, it just feels a little bit more safe, you know, like they feel a little bit mm -hmm. less out there, but um, 
Yeah, no, we're having a lot of fun with it. And, uh, and holy cow, the athletes are improving in leaps and bounds. It's, it's actually been really, really amazing. Like, you know, they're pushing their F, their uh, FTP or their functional threshold numbers up and, and just feedback from them out on the road and some of their favorite courses after doing some of these, uh, interactive training programs. So that's so awesome. that are you doing, are you doing the run as well or just the bike at the moment? So we're still trying to figure out the run, Greg. There's uh, you know, Zwift is doing running now and, um, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. So we are beta testing it, but, um, I'm going to, I'm going to hold back on giving you all the details on that one. No, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. 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 Yeah, No, there's, there, it can be done and it doesn't have to just be done on treadmill as well too. But, um, yeah, yeah. So, and if you look at, um, you know, fitness industry and, um, all the different apps that are coming out right now, it's, it's where it's all trending. It's, it's pretty cool. The, te- the technology coming out now, and the the AI type stuff, the 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 learning of these apps, the the amount of information we can put in, and the information that then comes out. You know, it's going to get to the point that it's like, wow, I have a a sore shoulder, and yeah. the app will go, well, you have a sore shoulder because you did this, 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 and this, and you didn't eat these anti-inflammatory foods which you were meant to, and that was like, whoa. <laughs> Right. No, totally. But you know, it's, I think what's really important to um, emphasize in all of this is that this is not like a uh, depersonalization of the training experience. It's actually finding a way for people, you know, who want to be safe in their home and maybe not ride in traffic anymore, <laughs> you no, know, yeah. um, and busy, you know, in, in cities where it's hard to get across the city to, um, you know, get to a club or whatever. This is actually giving people an opportunity to engage and be part of a community and and have world-class coaching you know to have access to uh to coaching that they might not have had before so it's a lot of time efficient it's always time efficient to be in home it's amazing what you can do in a one-hour workout in at home then compared to going out on the road and i don't know look i've found myself texting you know sitting in a car or at least looking down at a text i'm really anti-texting in the car but my phone dings you know we laura you know grab some eggs on the way home but suddenly i've looked down and and i ever i always feel like since texting and and all this i'm kind of like yeah i i I certainly am one of those people that's prepared to spend more time in the house on a bike than i would have in the past um and otherwise i'm going to find the right locations where i feel like it's a bit safer to ride a bike so i think you're doing a fantastic thing um you do it always for the right reasons lance it's amazing how these things suddenly accelerate so um you know i and then tell me just a little bit about your team um you touched on the life sport but you know you haven't got to where you are on your own um who have been some of you your big supporters along the way well, you know, I, I mean, I'm surrounded by a great coaching team and, um, I, I'm, I, some of these coaches I've been working for uh, 10 or 15 years now. And it's something that, you know, initially really grew, uh, organically. Uh, there were people that I had worked with in the past, um, admired and, um, just had a good professional connection with, and, uh, you know, it's, in any career and, and in the career of sport, you go through different trials and tribulations at, at different times. And um, to be able to have somebody who has been, uh, you know, in the trenches, um, you know, as a coach and, um, you know, maybe has experienced some of that with you that you can just soundboard ideas off of and, uh, mm. you know, sometimes commiserate with, sometimes celebrate with, um, that's, that's been uh, huge for me, um, professionally, personally, professionally, and quite honestly, it, um, you know, 
keeps me motivated uh, day in and day out to to be able to share those stories. You know, in a lot of ways, in the in the way that a you know an athlete can really value having a coach athlete relationship because you know they can get into the nitty gritty of what happened on that bike ride and the, you know, mm. what was hard about it and what was awesome about it and really break it down maybe in a way that they can't with their, you know, their partner who doesn't want to talk about tire choices and gear ratios. To the <laughs> end. <laughs> yeah, just ask Laura. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. She's like, I did that for 12 years and that's enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, so it's, it's a little bit the same with the, uh, the coach to coach, um, um, relationships that we have within uh, life sport as well too and you know i've always said that um one of the things that really makes us kind of cool and unique is that it's really is a team approach to coaching so when somebody works with us they have their valued you know one-on-one relationship with their coach but they're getting a team behind them as well you know we are always sharing ideas and input and case studies um you know of our, with our different athletes and what they've gone through and our learning and we're also showing up at events and, and su- when there are events, we're showing up at events and, and supporting each other's athletes too, when their other, maybe their coach can't be there that time. So yeah, it's, it's been a really positive experience, but you know, and if I could, I can call out a couple of our coaches, but um, you know, uh, Dan Smith has been with me for, um, you know, 15 years now. Uh, he's my sort of senior coach, right-hand man uh, at life sport and um, just a really solid guy. Um, maybe Philippe Bertrand, you remember um, from Canadian coaching days, uh, coached the 2008 Olympic team. Um, just uh, a, a relentlessly positive guy, and, and always um, just is a, you know a good supporter and uplifter. <clears throat> Mark Shorter, who I've known for 30 years, I think he did his physical education degree in the 70s, and just you know the guy that always has a smile on his face. He's, he's done something like. Uh, 40 Ironmans and 85 marathons. So he's got this incredible experience as well. And, you know, um, the list goes on. Um, just, uh, just a really, really solid group of coaches that uh, help support me back as well. That's awesome, mate. Uh, now, just quickly before we wrap things up, um, what about some, do you want to give some advice on gear recommendations for people? Obviously they should join the Lance Watson tri group and get a Zwift and, and bike, but, um, and, and favorite training locations around the world that people should check out once, once we're allowed to get moving oh, again. Man. Well, you just started a whole other <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so, well, you've got to go. Once we can start traveling, mate, everybody's yeah. got to go. Yeah. What's next? What's next? <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, New South Australia, Greg is, uh, I've always said is one of my top five places on the planet. And I know it's a place that's near and dear to your heart as well, too. So mm-hmm. you have to go to Noosa and you have to do the Noosa triathlon if you ever can. Um, that's, that's an incredible, uh, unique experience. Um, you know, I would say any athlete, if you ever have a chance to go to, um, you know, the big Island in Kona during Ironman week, at, you know, as an athlete, but also just as a fan of the sport and a spectator, that that's a, you know, that is an experience that every athlete should have at some point is just to be in that environment, to, to see it and see all the people getting ramped up for that week and the whole buzz. Um, I could probably pick a, a race in every continent. Um, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the Philippines and in Vietnam at events there, and that is a special environment. Um, Vietnam is just, you know, it's one of the hottest races out there, but um, the roads are probably nicer than any North American race, and the culture is incredible. The Philippines, I mean, if you like the idea of 300,000 people lining the streets and cheering for you like you're a rock star, 
and go to the Philippines. Like it's an incredible, incredible experience. You know, I think probably the bigger theme, Greg, is that, um, you know, when racing comes back, go back to some of your favorites. You tend to perform well at races that you love and your favorites, but there is just so much variety out there. Make sure that I, I think like once a year, if you can pick an event that you can put on your calendar as a new destination that takes you somewhere special and new, that's uh, that's that's one of the super um, exciting things about the sport as well. And I think there was another question there, but I forgot it. <laughs> no, that's all right. It was more. Uh, it was two questions in one, so I apologize. Um, yeah, I was just saying any gear recommendations that you think each athlete should maybe go. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, you know, yeah. I, we talked about the evolution of online and that kind of thing. So basically learning some of the online platforms like Swift or Ruby, if you haven't had a chance to, uh, or trainer road, if you haven't had a chance to check those out, um, a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's gamifying training. Um, there's online racing in that and boy, you get good efforts out of yourself. But, uh, you know, as far as equipment goes, um, I, I think a smart trainer is probably now, you know, in the last five years would be one of the, the, the sort of the real game changers as far as building athletes performances. It, it allows me as a coach to build these structured workouts that can actually control the trainer and the power output when they ride in what's called erg mode. So you don't have to change gears. It's just, it gives you like a very structured, here's what your power output is for the interval. Here's what it is for recovery, um, cadence indications and all that. So it's, it's especially for developing cyclists, you know, who are learning how to train and how to nail down um, um, really specific interval sets to get the most physical gains it's uh it's such a great learning uh um opportunity and tool and and um, it's like guaranteed you'll get faster so smart trainer that's my answer i, I need to get one of those i need to get one of those for myself i've uh, i haven't done much biking the last year or so but i um i've still got the old school mag trainer the one that you get from japan what's it called the menorah oh, whatever it is yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very old school. I put in the biggest oh, gear I yeah. can and just munch the gears and, and uh you but I have it. been yeah. I have okay. been more yeah. of a so I was doing one of my online uh, coaching workouts yesterday with our group and we were doing low cadence intervals, you know, to build strength. Yeah. And your name came up in practice yesterday. <laughs> you know, and I said, You think this is hard and uh, you know, and, and how does it work? I said, I remember Greg Bennett, you know, pushing fifty <laughs> at four hundred watts with his head hanging down between his uh, elbows on his, you know, and, and hyperventilating. And I'm like, that's how you build strength. <laughs> so, uh, the, the stories get bigger and better, everybody. <laughs> well, one day I'll tell the story of how you're the, you were the world's best downhill runner too, but that's another day. <laughs> I, I had, that was the one gift I did get. I don't know how I got it, but I could run down a hill. All right. So I, I mate, yeah. this has been absolutely fantastic. Normally at this stage, I would say what's next for you, but it's uh, so hard for anybody to, plan too far in the future um i mean yeah. apart from doing some of the like you said some of the virtual racing and online stuff uh, anything growth, else uh, yeah growth of online coaching education as well um you're yeah. gonna see yeah. more um um sort of virtual clinics um with multiple speakers uh it's it, it's again it's one of the, the silver lining of um all the you know the pandemic and and all these restrictions that's forcing us to innovate and so you're going to see um, more opportunities for um, athletes in different corners of the world to to be able to be uh, or, or coaches in different corners of the world to be educated by some of the uh, the world leaders online. It's we're seeing more and more of a proliferation of that, and that's that's where my business will go as well. Nice. Well, let me know if you ever want want somebody to come on and just chat because I've enjoyed doing a few of those. I did a couple one in Australia. I've actually got one coming up with um 
friend of ours, uh, Barry Shepley. On, uh, oh, yes, very good. Awesome. November 8th, I think he's got something happening. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to be on that one with him. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot more of this kind of virtual. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere once the everything does open up because I think we all see the practical side of it as well. So um, fantastic, Seriously. mate. And where do people get in touch with you or follow you? Is it just, uh, I'll put all the links in, in the show notes, but um, is it a uh, LifeSport? Um, sure. LifeSportCoaching.com is the website. And um, uh, Instagram is uh, at coach.lance. Uh, you know, I think actually um, a lot of your athlete uh, listeners would really enjoy my Instagram because I am posting quite regularly, um, you know, video of some high performing athletes. Uh, Swimming usually bike. yourself. Usually yourself, though. Is that what yeah, you're high performing performing athletes <laughs> like myself? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Fifty-two uh, in a couple of weeks here, Greg. It's uh, not too much left in this, these old legs, but um, um, you know, yeah. Some of the uh, the elite athletes that I'm currently working with, um, some beautiful open water uh, videos and that kind of thing, and and I'm always trying to provide um, instruction and and learning on my. Uh, my various um, platforms is, as well. It is. I, I've been watching on there for quite a while. And yeah. So, I'm watching is uh, Instagram. Guys swim at Elk or Thetis Lake. We used to always do Thetis, but uh, yeah. are you going? This is a go to in Durant's Lake, that beautiful little lake up on top of the hill. And then Elk. That's right. Too. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely. Yeah. You're talking about Victoria as a place to visit and, and one of the great. You have to. You have to. Here. Yeah. Yeah, Noosa, Hawaii, Victoria. There you go, everybody. There's the yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, thank you for coming on the show, and thank you everybody for listening to Lance Watson. Just absolutely fantastic, mate. Thanks. Oh, thanks for having me, Greg. It was it was a lot of fun catching up with you. All right. Thanks, everybody. For show notes, uh, timestamps, and all of that, you can go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media, and I'll have all the links to, to Lance there as well. So, all right, mate, stay on the line. Cheers, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page, or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode. So subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.